Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. And just to update you, thanks in large part to many of you, uh, we've been able to purchase a new home in central Missoula. And there's a lot of work ahead of us when it comes to making another warehouse our church home. And you can continue to contribute to remodel and renovation funds at achurchbuilding.com. But we just want to express to you how grateful we are for your support. And we hope that this resource you're about to listen to will be a blessing for you as well. And if you guys would just bow your heads with me once more. Uh, Lord Jesus, we pray that you give us eyes to see uh, who you want us to see, uh, who you are in this Easter story. Lord, um, the reality behind what we celebrate annually in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is far more than something we remember. It's actually something that when we believe in it, something happens to us, something changes our status before God, changes the way in which we view this world, changes our reality in what is joyful and what is sorrowful in this world. And so Jesus, I pray today that you give us eyes of faith and ears that hear the wonderful message of your beauty. We pray all of this in your name. Amen. So here we are in what is remarkably our first in-person Easter service in almost two years. And as odd and painful as last Easter was, preaching and singing to an empty warehouse, uh, this Easter, in my own heart, is unique. It almost, uh, I don't know if you guys had the same experience in the last 12 months, uh, but 12 months have gone past. (laughs) And uh, everything has crept up on me. It was one of those things where it's like, oh my goodness, we need to start looking at Easter at the church. And this was unique because by God's grace in our home, uh, the events of the Easter season had become a really sweet time for me and my family. There's like genuine anticipation, excitement to be with the church. And this year, for whatever reason, it was lacking. Maybe it was schools beginning to open back up again, uh, a nice spring kind of thawing what was a painfully long winter, the 24-7 news cycle, the pace of life. All of them contributed to me kind of viewing this season as nothing more than kind of this like canned celebration and obligation that is kind of an odd thing in the pace of what is now our crazy, weird, abnormal life. And if there's one thing the past 12 months have shown us, it's that our world is broken on all sorts of levels. It's been a disorienting season for everyone, politically, economically, perhaps even for you spiritually. And it could leave us asking the question, is this all there is? And life in this world is incredibly disorienting at times, but the truth is this isn't a modern phenomenon. It was disorienting in Jesus' day. It was disorienting on the second, for the first page of the Bible when the serpent came and told lies to our parents, Adam and Eve. But today, Jesus is going to speak into the confusion of his own disciples, and he's going to give them astounding hopes, which they and we can draw on in a world which seems chaotic and difficult. And today, if you haven't yet opened your Bibles, we're going to be in what Stephen read for us, John chapter 16. And what we're going to see is there is immense hope and peace that Jesus' resurrection gives us in a chaotic world. There's immense hope and peace in the resurrection Jesus gives us in a chaotic world. And these hopes we're going to look at today, 
These hopes are hopes we need today, but they are not hopes in general. They are not broad hopes. They are not universal hopes. They are hopes we can only see, understand, and rightfully claim because of the events of Easter Sunday and the empty tomb. Resurrection Sunday changes everything if only you would see in it all that Jesus says it means for you if you believe in him as your savior. If you're familiar at all with Christianity, I assume you have some sort of equation of what Christianity is in your mind. It, perhaps it's something which is wrong, which is like works plus faith equals eternal life. That's not the gospel. Works don't save you. Or maybe you have a right view of the gospel where it's faith plus repentance in Jesus equals eternal life. And that is wonderfully true. That is the equation. That is the simplicity of it. But what is the benefit of that eternal life in our world today? How does the gospel, which triumphed over the grave on Resurrection Sunday, impart to us meaningful hope in a world which seems to be far from heaven? And this is what we're going to look at today in Jesus' teaching on his own death and resurrection. We're going to see hope in three ways today. We're going to see first, in Jesus, we have unshakable joy. Then in Jesus, we have the love of the Father. And then lastly, in Jesus, we have overcome the world. Jesus gives us joy, Jesus gives us love, and Jesus gives us victory in this world. And we're going to begin today by looking at the context of our passage, John chapter 16. John is one of the four uh, kind of portraits of Jesus' life we have in the scriptures And we get a little bit of context in John 16, verses 16 through 18. This is where our text begins today. A little while, and you'll see me no longer. And again a little while, and you will see me. Some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again a little while, and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. When I was in college, I took Spanish classes. And in Spanish, the second semester of Spanish, the teacher just stopped speaking English, which I thought to be terribly cruel. As if if I didn't understand Spanish 201, I will obviously understand Spanish, or 101, I would obviously understand Spanish 201 magically. And so what I would do, this was my secret, is I would sit in the class, and when she would ask me a question, I would either nod my head and say, ha ha ha, no say, which means I don't know which was the truest reality in the world at that point in time. Or I would just nod my head and say, ha, 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 see, see. And there was a couple times where she questioned me more and everyone laughed. I still to this day have no idea what I agreed to. Um, But that's kind of the level of understanding the disciples have in this text. Jesus, throughout the story, has been laying down these hints and also explicit teachings that he is going to lay down his life, he is going to be killed, and he is going to rise again. And that's what he's speaking of here when he says, in a little while you'll no longer see me, speaking of his death, and then you will see me, speaking of his resurrection. To us who know the story of scripture, we can solve Jesus' riddle pretty easily. We've seen the end of the movie. But the disciples in the moment are struggling. They nod their head with Jesus, and then they turn to one another and they're like, do you, do you, do you know? Is this hide and seek? What are, we, what are we doing at this point in time? But Jesus here is doing something wonderful in this text. And this is why I love this text for Easter Sunday, even though it's a little odd, because what's happening here in John chapter 16 predates Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. 
It happens before the events of Easter Sunday when he was crucified and resurrected for our sins. But something profound is happening in this text. And that is that Jesus is teaching his disciples in the confusion they have about what is going on in their world. He wants them to see the hope they have and how different their life will be after the Easter events. In a world which at the moment is not making sense for the disciples, Jesus is showing them how his death, burial, and resurrection will give them clarity and hope. And isn't this a wonderful glimpse into the heart of Jesus? Sometimes our experience with the world contradicts what we think following Jesus looks like, or even who Jesus is. But here we see Jesus doesn't want faux disciples trying to squeeze confidence out of life where there is none. Instead, he wants to speak into your confusion and your doubts with the enduring hope of the gospel. Jesus is big enough to handle our confusion and to handle our doubts. At best, the disciples are confused in this text. At worst, they're anxious and fearful. And yet the Jesus who knows their hearts speaks to them here, as we'll see for the purpose of encouraging them, of comforting them, of what we'll see at the end, that they might take heart. Jesus wants to help you and I make sense of things that don't compute in our minds. How can we make sense of a world which seems broken, painful, beyond repair? We have a category for good things that happen and good people, but it's the categories of brokenness and evil that often throw any worldview to the wind? How can we make sense of a God who promises to be near to us, but at times seems far from us? Where is he? We can't see him. Even if we admit to have the Holy Spirit, which is true and orthodox, we often wrestle with his perceived nearness to us. But this is the world in which Jesus begins to press the hope of Easter. He begins to answer these questions first in verses 19 through 22 as he answers into the disciples' confusion. Jesus knew they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me. And again in a little while, you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You'll be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So you also have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. So here we see the first reality of the resurrection in a confusing world, and that is this, that is in Jesus, we have unshakable joy. We're going to see three paradoxes in Jesus' teaching as it goes on. And the first paradox of the death and resurrection, or the first paradox, the death and resurrection of Jesus solves, is that God often uses incredible sorrow to produce incredible joy. And when we look at the events of the gospel, we see that following Jesus not only means you might encounter a season of sorrow, which for the disciples in this present context was their friend, their teacher, their rabbi Jesus being crucified. But in addition to that, it might seem that the world is profiting off of our sorrow. That the world is rejoicing off of what breaks 
our hearts. In fact, we might even look at the joy of the world in our own pain and say, man, what can I do to have that? How many of you watched a basketball game last night? Had a winning shot in the final seconds. And I love those moments because what you see is you see a team standing on a table celebrating. And then you see immediate shots of other people looking at that, wishing that were them. Man, how easy in your fight against sin, how easy in following Jesus it is to look at what you have not and look at what the world has and say, say, why can't I have that? Where's my tabletop celebration? The Jews delighted in the crucifixion of Jesus. They boasted in it. They called for it. They got exactly what they were hoping for. You can imagine the smile on Satan's face. We're after a seeming eternity of wrestling and rebelling and scheming. He finally put to death the Son of God himself. Sinful man and a scheming Satan delighted in the death of the one who was a friend to, see, to sinners, a healer to the sick, a comforter to the lonely. Meanwhile, in that moment, the disciples were sorrowful, mourning, confused, and alone. But Jesus says to these same disciples, your sorrow will turn into joy. And help them understand it, he gives this illustration of childbirth. I've been a part of four births, and I don't mean to sensationalize the birth process at all, but if I had to qualify it, I would say, not fun. And that's from the guy who's just holding the ice chips. And despite how painful this experience of childbirth is, we find the experience worthwhile. In fact, some of us go back for seconds or thirds, or in this church, sevenths. <laughs> Why? Because when life is seen as the result of that pain, it changes how we remember all of it. That's how Jesus puts it. He says, when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into this world. Jesus is not saying, as many worldviews do, that there is no pain or sorrow in this world, that it's only a figment of your imagination. Jesus acknowledges the painful reality of life on this planet. He acknowledges the pain that he himself will experience physically and spiritually on the cross. He acknowledges the pain the disciples will have watching the one who they say is their Lord and their Messiah die on a tree, but his promise to them is that when the pain is over, there is joy in life that follows. You see, in Genesis, we see Adam and Eve sin, and as part of that sin, pain and death enter into the world. They are cursed, and part of that curse is pain in childbirth which means that every cry you hear in a delivery room, every pain that comes is a reminder that this life is difficult, that this life is painful, that this world is in need of redemption. Pain is a reminder of our brokenness. 
But here in real time in the gospel of John, we see the labor pains of the cross, which are the promise of redemption from our discomfort and from our sorrow. Here, this pain is producing a new life, a life unrivaled, a life not just to an individual as childbirth is, but a life to all who would belong to Jesus. Here, Jesus is going to die. And he's going to die not because he deserved it, but because we deserved it. We are dead in our sins. Our greatest problem is not only that we do bad things, our greatest problem is not that we think right things. That we don't worship God. That we all have a track record of past due worship and affection for the God who created the world, who is the good and true king. Just as a child in a womb has no chance of being born without the labor of the mother, so too will we never be made alive apart from the, growing, or the birthing pains of Christ on the cross. Jesus died because our sin demanded us to die. He died because we deserve death. He died and is going to rise again for the sake of bringing new life to all who have no right to it, of enlivening the bodies of every heart which is dead in sin. Look at what Jesus himself said he would do in John chapter 10, verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they, that is his sheep, may have life and have it abundantly. Look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Consider the wonderful hope of the gospel in Ephesians chapter two. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. You see, the paradox of the gospel, sorrow and then joy, is opposite the world. The world says joy must come first and fast, but this is backwards from our experience with the gospel. If we prioritize joy first and fast in this world, we end up having problems. Those of you who are in our Bible reading plan this week, we saw this in 2 Samuel, in the tragic story of Ammon and Tamar. Ammon saw Tamar and the lust was inflamed in his heart, so much so that he couldn't think of anything else. It said it made him sick to his stomach. The only thing he wanted, the only desire of his heart, the only dream of his mind was that he could have Tamar in an intimate way. And so what does he do? He tries to find joy in the world, first and fast. He deceitfully and violently sins against Tamar, to take what he thinks will give him that joy in the moment. How often is that the way we pursue joy in our own lives? If I could just have this, I will be put at rest. I'll have peace. I'll have everything my heart wants. But instead, what Ammon has is pain, hatred towards the woman he once loved. 
and this keen realization that everything he hoped sex would offer him stood in the distance laughing at him. He had his joy for a moment first and fast, but it faded away quicker than he even had it. Such is the promise of sin. It leads with joy and pays in sorrow. But in the gospel, in God's divine mind, sorrow comes first and then joy. Sorrow comes because the gospel starts with the first reality that there is a God and it's not you. That might not seem sorrowful to you, but that reality, if you believe it, is cataclysmic to your sense of identity. It reshapes fundamentally who you are and what you hope to gain in this world. It is a position which if we are to understand the immense weight that there is a God and it is not us, our pride comes falling to the ground. The gospel starts with a close sense of your sin and the depth of your darkness in your heart. The gospel starts with you realizing that you have spent all the days prior to that moment in your conversion living for a glory that fades and a joy that dies. Sorrow of worship not given, of obedience not offered, of Christ not cherished, and sorrow chiefly that nothing you could do can change the fact that your sorrow demands death. But joy comes. Your sorrow in your sin turns to joy when you realize there is nothing you could do to save yourself. But everything Jesus is going to do on the cross is able to change that reality. Joy that in this Jesus who went away to the grave and came back in resurrected life did so so that you can have your sins dealt with, so that you can be brought back into God's good pleasure. But more importantly, that one st- what stands at the end of this trauma on the cross is new life, resurrection life, abundant life, joyful life. Look at what Jesus says in verse 22. So you also have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take that joy from you. You will have sorrow, Jesus says. He says, but one day I will see you again, and you will see me, and your heart will rejoice, and no one can take that away. How fragile are our joys in this world? how fleeting they stand and how little they actually satisfy. But here, Jesus is speaking of an eternally unlosable joy, which comes when you see Jesus the way Jesus is saying, you will see him. And so the question is, when is that moment? When is it that the disciples will have this encounter with Jesus, this clarity of view on Jesus, so much so that they receive this eternal joy? At this point in the narrative, we know it's a future event. If you pick up a commentary, scholars and and Bible study dudes are often wrestling over what this is. What does he mean? When is this cosmically joy-producing event? Is it when Jesus rises again, shows himself to Mary? Is it when Jesus resurrects himself and shows himself to the majority of the disciples in a home? Or maybe when he appears to a smaller group of the disciples, which we'll look at next week, on the shores of Tiberias. 
Or is it when he presents his resurrected body to 500 witnesses at once? Or is it when he comforts and commissions his disciples, the early church, to a life of ministry, to go forth, proclaiming the gospel, baptizing the converts, and teaching the Christians, and then ascends into heaven? Is it when Jesus in Acts, sends and pours out his Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, to indwell his believers from that time forth and forevermore? Is it when Jesus returns again a second time to finally and fully defeat sin and death, to establish a kingdom with no end and to wipe every tear from our eye? Christianity is riddled with problems. Which joyful event is the right joyful event? Which wonderful promise is the promise which is spoken of? It could be any of these. It can be all of these. It can be whenever you see this resurrected Jesus for exactly who he is. The one who takes away the sins of the world and gives away life and life abundantly. And in that moment, you have an unlosable joy. The Christian life is buoyed by joy. Joy seen first in the kernel of Christ, which fell and died. But joy seen ultimately in the kingdom which grew out of that seed. A kingdom that has grown across languages, continents, pandemics, questionings, catastrophes, and centuries. A kingdom of unshakable joy and new life in Jesus Christ. Yet, despite that promise of joy, We live in a world which is often joyless. We live in a world which threatens our joy. We live in a world which stomps on our joy. But this is why Jesus continues his teaching with his disciples about his next gift in the resurrection. This is where we see our second point. In Jesus, we have the love of the Father. In Jesus, we have the love of the Father. Read with me John 16, 23 through 28. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask in the Father, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I come from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world to go to the Father. And so here, for this next bit of hope, Jesus gets theological and begins teaching his disciples this profound theological reality behind something that we think is simple, prayer. Up until this point, Jesus has not asked his disciples to pray in his name. And you want to know why? Because it's weird to pray to a person who's standing next to you when you could just talk to him. That's the reason. (laughs) Jesus is there. He doesn't need, they don't need to pray to Jesus. They could ask Jesus. But he's saying a time is coming Well, I'm going to go be with my father. And in that day, you are to pray in my name. And here we see a core truth affirmed that Jesus himself is God. 
Jesus fully man and fully God, the second person of the Trinity. Jesus is not God the Father, and God the Father is not Christ the Son, but here we see that Jesus and the Father are one. To pray to one is to pray to all. To pray in Jesus' name is to pray in the name of God. And this is far more of just a theological distinction of Christianity. This is an immense truth which gives us practical hope. Truth in a world where we often feel alone. Truth in a world where we wonder if we have any hope. You see, here we see the whole of our lives is surrounded by the ecosystem and support of the Trinity. Right before this, Jesus encourages his disciples by saying, I'm leaving you, but I'm gonna give you the Holy Spirit. I'm not gonna be with you physically, but the third person of the Trinity will be with you. Or I'm not gonna be with you physically. The third person of the Trinity will be with you spiritually. The Trinity will help you. The Holy Spirit will be with you. And now he tells them that on account of his work on the cross, through Jesus Christ, ascending to God the Father, they also have access to God through Jesus. You see, the Israelites understood that they always had to approach God through some sort of intermediary. When you read the Old Testament, you see this everywhere, whether that intermediary was a prophet or a priest or a sacrifice or the temple structure itself. If you wanted to go to God, you had to go to a place, you had to go to a person, you had to travel, you had to be there. In Deuteronomy, we see all of these caveats made for if that place to worship God is too far off, here's what you can do. But in Jesus, the place where God dwells no longer was too far off. It came to us in Jesus. And now that Jesus lived and died for our sins and has ascended to the Father, Jesus becomes our forever intermediary who is God himself. And this is why Jesus says, kind of this odd thing where he says, when you pray, it's not that I'm gonna hear your prayer and then I'm gonna take it from the reception desk and go to God's office and read it to God. That would assume that prayer to Jesus is distinct from prayer to God or that Jesus is just some glorified answering machine for God. But Jesus is co-equal with God the Father and we see this profound truth in verse 27. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and believe that I came from God. When we believe in the name of Jesus and we pray in the name of Jesus, we are heard by the Father himself. And the Father delights to answer our prayers. Why? Because he loves us. Growing up, did you ever have a friend? Um, that wasn't like a subtle diss. There's a second part of the question. <laughs> Do you offer friends, you losers? Do you ever have a friend who would come over to the house and would maybe eat at your table, but you know your parents merely tolerated him? Or maybe you're a parent right now and you're like, my kids have that guy. <laughs> they come to the table and they're often rude or obnoxious or loud and disruptive to the home, but you tolerate it, why? Because you love your kid. And if this makes him happy, whatever. As uncomfortable as it is, this is great. Is that how you approach God the Father through Jesus Christ? That yeah, Jesus brings you into the household of God, but still God is this frowning, upset, scoffing under his breath, about to have that awkward talk with mom after dinner conversation. But here, don't we see the profound reality of how wonderful Jesus changes the Father's demeanor towards us? The son has given his brothers and sisters his own righteousness. 
so that when we come to the table of God, the Father loves you like he loves the Son. Because you are robed in the blood of Christ, he sees in you only his Son. He delights in you with the same delight he delights in Jesus. God loves us as his son because we're robed in the riches of his son. He loves us as his son because we saw earlier in the gospel of John that God the Father gives to Christ all who would come to him, that we come to God only because he knows us, loves us, and calls us towards Christ and covers us in the blood of Christ. To come to God through the person of Jesus is to come fully loved and cherished by the Father himself. What a welcome we have through Jesus. John Calvin commented on this astounding truth in this verse when he said this. He said, this, this verse, chapter 16, verse 27, is a remarkable passage by which we are taught that we have the heart of the heavenly Father as soon as we have placed before him the name of the Son. That's the beauty of the gospel. That not only Jesus has done it all, but when we believe in him, all he has done is applied to us before God himself. We enter into the love of the Father by faith in the Son. So what does this mean in a world which is difficult and chaotic? It means you have the privilege of asking the Father. Not only does God love us like his Son, but like any parent who loves their child, they are for the child. How many of you would give your child whatever they need to thrive in life? But oftentimes our time or our finances or our location is limited. God is unlimited in his love for his people. And he wants us to cry to him in our weaknesses so that he can do what dads do, which is care for them and love for them. Jesus says, ask in my name because it makes good devotions. That's not what he says. Ask in my name because it gives you Christian points. Ask in my name because it's a great transition when you're in church. He says, ask in my name so that your joy may be full. We live in a world which constantly reminds us of our emptiness, but because of what Christ has done on the cross, we go to God where we become full in his affection for us. When life is hard, prayer exists for our joy to carry our needs to this loving Father and make our requests known for him. In the day where we see Jesus and the life he gives us, the joy unshakable, we also see the love the Father has for us and how he wants to help you in your weaknesses when you go to him in prayer. At this point, the equation the disciples are building in their mind sounds pretty good. Joy unshakable, whatever we want from the Father equals ultimate unlimited happiness. Things are looking up at this point. And this is what we see they understand, right? In verse 29, we read this. His disciples said, ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. No, no, say. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe you came from God. The disciples are like, if we have unshakable joy, and if we have God the Father who's going to give us anything, then we're set. Life is good. 
But Jesus knows the events that are going to follow. He knows the fight for joy is not always easy. He knows there will be times where joy seems different and even an eternity away. There will be times where it seems though you cry out to the Father, the loving Father has no desire to answer you. That might be your experience in this world, but here Jesus wants to get ahead of that experience and remind you of realities that are at play even when joy seems different and God seems unconcerned. And he knows that this experience often comes in seasons of trial, tribulation, or distress. And this is Jesus' final teaching on the resurrection in this text, and this is where we see in Jesus we have overcome the world. Read with me verse 31 through 33. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come. When you will be scattered, each to his own home, and you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So Jesus challenges the disciples. It almost seems like he's challenging their optimism when he says that hard seasons in this world will cause you to question your faith and even cause you to act out of doubt. Jesus is speaking about these hours which are gonna come in John chapter 18 when Jesus is betrayed and the disciples scatter like bugs when you lift up a rock from the ground. They run to the shadows. And he says that when that happens, you're gonna leave me all alone which is the irony of this, because the disciples are concerned that Jesus is leaving them. What do you mean you're going to leave us? And Jesus says, no, you're going to leave me. But there's this profound truth here where Jesus doesn't then say, you bunch of scaredy cats. Instead, he says, but I will not be alone. The Father is with me. You see, even when Jesus walked, this is what we talked about on Friday night, when Jesus walked obediently into the most isolating and painful experience in the history of the world, where Jesus not only died in his flesh, but he took the weight of all the sins, which drove for the first time ever a wedge between the perfect relationship he had with the Father. When he did that, he knew he was not alone that God the Father was with him, near to him, in love with him. And in the face of disciples whose doubt and confusion will cause them to scatter, Jesus doesn't seek to shame them. Instead, he extends that same peace to them. He says, I say these things so that you may have peace. In this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In this world, we will have trial, we will have tribulation, we will have seasons where we feel we are about to abandon Jesus, or perhaps Jesus has abandoned you. You might feel the world is only the joy of the sinner and the sorrow of the saint. But here, if that is your experience, Jesus wants you to take heart. He wants you to be encouraged in the depth of the hope you have in the resurrection. He wants you to find peace in him. Peace that he has overcome the world. What does it mean that Jesus has overcome the world? In closing, there are two things 
that are helpful for us to consider when it comes to our hope. The first is in the same way in which Jesus was never alone in his most crushing hour is true also for us who are in Jesus Christ. For those who are in Jesus, the work of Jesus has overcome your separation due to sin with God the Father. He brings you into God's eternal and unshakable love. He brings you to this place where though you feel alone, the smile of God is upon you for God is with you through Jesus Christ. In your wrestling with doubt and growth, God is with you. In your fight against sin, God is with you. In the challenge of your home, God is with you. In the tension of relationships in this world, God is with you. In the frantic pace of your job, God is with you. In seasons of confusion, God is with you. Why? Because of everything Jesus has done to win us into God's love. But secondly... We know that in Jesus and in the face of tribulation, the resurrection shows us that Jesus has indeed overcome the world. Not only has he won us into the affection of God, he has actually overcome the world. It means that we know that for those who hope in Christ Jesus, sorrow, tribulation, and pain will one day be totally done away with. It means that our greatest problem of sin was actually overcome. It means that we will no longer spend eternity apart from God that he has overcome. It means that sin no longer has the last laugh. It means that evil in this world will finally and fully be judged. It means that what lies ahead of us is better than what lies behind. It means that in Jesus, all of the wrongs will be made right. All of the pain of injustice will give way to perfect justice in the gospel. All of the sorrow of this world will give way to unshakable joy. Have you felt the weight of the world in this last year. I don't know why, but this past week, I talked about with my wife, was just a weird week in my heart because of me wrestling with why this Easter seems so weird and distinct and not normal. This is just some observations I have this week, just this week. On social media, I saw slanderous and terrible things written about Jesus and his followers. I saw some public figure in the secular space tweet something on Good Friday and I made the mistakes to read the comments. I saw violent, terrible, and offensive things written. This week I wrestled with being downcast in my own soul, feeling the temptation in my own heart. This week my wife had a conversation with a conservative Christian Asian American woman who's considering moving to Missoula and one of the first questions she asked is, are my kids going to be treated differently because of their skin color? This week, four people, including a nine-year-old boy, were shot and killed in California. This week, the remains of a kidnapped and murdered missionary were discovered in Mali. This week, a Capitol police officer was shot and killed in the Capitol on lockdown because of a gunman. Late last night, three were murdered by another gunman in Virginia. Brothers and sisters, this world on its own has no joy for us to long for. But if we see the labor pains of Christ, then even when this world seems to crash in on us, we rejoice that Christ has overcome it. That everything we feel now reminds us of what we might feel later. 
Look at the hope we have in the coming of Christ. Hope which gives us deep joy in the face of painful tribulation. Hope which like roots driven into the ground we are to draw from for life and joy. 2 Timothy 1 verse 10. Speaking of the gospel which has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, 15 or 53 through 56, speaking of our resurrection, like Jesus' resurrection. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 John 5, 4, For if anyone has been born of God, that is from the labor pains of Christ on the cross in belief in that wonderful sacrifice, you've overcome the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And lastly, Revelation 21. Looking forward to that day. That day when despite what aches in this world, despite our daily reminders that there must be something more, where we see finally and fully Christ has overcome and established his new world for those who are his. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God, prepared as a bride and adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Brothers and sisters, that is possible because of what Christ has done to overcome the world. There is an empty tomb so that we might have full hope. So let us have faith. Let us turn to the Christ who welcomes sinners into the love of God and take heart in him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, the solution for all of us is to believe the gospel. Even as the disciples who genuinely and honestly said, we believe, Jesus says, but you will believe more. You will believe better as you get greater greater clarity onto who I am. 
And so Lord, for those of us in here who are believers and we still wrestle with this world, may we draw deep hope, abiding hope, hope in this Easter event, which is so much bigger than the pace of life in the situations of the world and the noise that demands for us to elevate secondary and tertiary things to ultimate things. But Lord, we pray for those in here or those watching online who have never seen that they would come to you, that they would realize there is hope, there is life, there is joy, not in living for the glory that comes from man, but in living for the glory that comes from God, glory given only in the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that as your church, we encourage one another with these words all the more as we see the day drawing near. We pray this in your name, amen.